welcome back to Base Camp and to our study of biblical manhood and womanhood. And this episode is the very last episode in this study that we began all the way back in January as a ministry. And if you recall, we began this series because the government of Canada passed Bill C-4 and it became law back in January. Thus, to better equip our church with a firm grasp of the Bible's clear teachings on gender and sexuality, as well as to lay some good foundations for biblical manhood and womanhood, we thought that it would be best to not simply just preach a sermon on this witty topic, but rather to give a couple of months of study into it. Thus, these episodes. I, I pray that as we have done so, they have been beneficial and have helped you better come to understand what it means to be created by God as a man or as a woman, that, that your gender is a good gift given to you by a good and sovereign God. And I pray that it's helped you continue to learn not to divorce who you are from your body the way that the Gnostics do, but rather to realize that we are an embodied people that God wants us to glorify him in and with the bodies he has given to us, with the genders he has given to us, not to wage war against the bodies that he has given and, and further revolt against his gracious and righteous and holy rule. Rather, we are called to submit to God with our souls and with our bodies, to, to him who who has created us. We are, we are created to be who he has created us to be. We are to submit to him in all areas of our lives, including with what we do with our bodies. So I pray that this study has been helpful and that it has led to your encouragement and edification, your building up and understanding who God is and who he made you to be as a man or as a woman and how that is a good gift to embrace. And by doing so, that you might glorify God in your body. So with no further ado, let's dive into this last episode, Sex, Marriage, and Same-Sex Attraction. Now, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve all the way at the very beginning of the Bible, do you remember that, Genesis chapter 3? He began by asking them, did God actually say? And, and as we've talked about, the question maybe nowadays might, might be, did God actually mean? Did he, did he mean that? In this, we've talked about how his tactic was to get God's people to doubt God's word. And over the years, Satan's strategy has remained the same. Right? He's still whispering, did God actually say that? Did he actually mean it? Right, and, and one of the things that God has spoken about, which some people today find especially hard to believe, is in the realms of sexuality. In fact, all of us have a hard time with that. Right, does God actually say you can't have sex outside of marriage? Does God actually say that looking at someone lustfully with your eyes is sin? Does God actually say heterosexual behavior outside of marriage is sinful and wrong? Did, did God actually say homosexual behavior is wrong? And in brief, yes, this is exactly what God says. But so often, even as Christians, we can struggle to understand 
why? Why? If our intuitions and instincts aren't steeped in a biblical worldview, the way that we see the world isn't shaped by the Bible, then God's design for sexuality may seem arbitrary and restrictive. God's just putting up barriers for no reason. And so the whole goal in this episode is to examine the Bible's positive vision for sexuality. This is part of, uh, of, of why we think this is so core and so important uh, in, in talking about biblical manhood and womanhood, because being made male and female means that we are sexual creatures. See, we not only have a God-given gender, we were made with the capability to engage in sex. And sexuality is good. It is part of God's glorious design. God wasn't surprised. He's not like, oops, I didn't mean for that. <laughs> God, God means for that inside of the confines of marriage. But that also means it's a gift to be received as God intends rather than something we use according to our own terms. And so today we're, we're not so much going to focus on those individual laws or commands on sex in the Bible. Instead, in today's episode, we are going to take a step back, take in the whole biblical view, and try to explain why such commands make sense. So we're going to examine God's original design for sex and marriage. We'll look at Jesus and the abundant life he had as an unmarried man. We'll look at his teaching about abstaining from sex and marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Then with all of that in mind, we'll consider same-sex attraction as a case study for how this biblical vision for sexuality speaks to the brokenness of our sexual condition. And through it all, my prayer is that we would see that God actually values sex more highly than this world does, more highly than we naturally do. And so may we come to see the beauty and goodness of God's design for sexuality. So that's our aim. That's where that's what we're going for. So, so let's start at the beginning. God's design for marriage and sex. If you want to look with me at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28, it reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And here we see sexual complementarity, complementing complementing of the sexes, right? Male and female, he created them. And we see procreation, God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Now, look with me at Genesis chapter two. We discover that these things are linked, right? God creates Adam first and said it's not good for him to be alone. See, by himself, he isn't able to be fruitful and multiply. No suitable helper is found for him among all the animals. Of course not. So pick it up with me in verse 22. In the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then we have the very first marriage, right? Verse 23, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So for Adam, it takes someone who's both like him and unlike him, to be fruitful and multiply. Right? She's bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. They share a common humanity, both made in God's image, and yet they're not identical. She is a woman. He is a man. And what does it mean that marriage is a one flesh union? Well, listen to how Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 to 32. 
where he cites this exact passage of Genesis. He says, in the same way that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Human beings are body and soul. We're both. And when a husband and wife marry, their, their lives are united, and their bodies are united through sexual intercourse. Right? Their relationship of union symbolizes the union between Christ and the church. As the bride in the Song of Solomon says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. In other words, marriage is a relationship of mutual self-giving, a self-giving that isn't merely sexual, but in which sexual union plays a unique role of joining the couple together as one flesh. So what is marriage? Well, let me give you a definition of that. Marriage is a covenantal, right? We've been talking about that, a, an oath-bound relationship, a covenantal bodily union of one man and one woman open to the gift of procreation symbolic to the, of the relationship between Christ and the church. Let me let me give that to you again. Marriage is a covenantal bodily union of one man and one woman open to the gift of procreation symbolic of the relationship between Christ and the church. Let me unpack that. Firstly, it's covenantal. This means it's exclusive. It's founded on fidelity, faithfulness. It's it's intended to be permanent, only dissolved at death, right? Though scripture does provide legitimate grounds for divorce, divorce is to be rare and unusual, right? Jesus taught, what God has joined together, let not man separate, Matthew chapter 19, verse six. So it's covenantal. Secondly, marriage is bodily union. They shall become one flesh, now, this means a marriage is normally consummated and sealed by sexual intercourse. Now, with that said, can we maybe envision a marriage where because of physical injury or disability, a married couple isn't ever able to engage in sex? Well, yes, but this would be irregular and a result of the fall. Such a couple could be legitimately married, but it would be like a Christian who never got baptized. You can be a true believer and never be baptized, but normally baptism is the seal of belonging to Christ in the new covenant. So in the same way, normally, sex is the seal of belonging to your spouse in that covenant of marriage. So marriage is this bodily union, becoming one flesh. And sex both enacts and depicts the one flesh union of a man and a woman. Right? The union of a married couple is more than physical, but it, but it normally includes the physical. Third, on the... on the next point we're going to make, uh, marriage is a union of one man and one woman in particular, right? Gender complementarity is definitional to marriage. It's not optional. It is of the essence of the thing. Why, you might wonder. Well, two reasons. First, because, think about our definition we gave a moment ago, procreation is one of the designed ends for marriage. Again, marriage is the God-given means in Genesis chapter 2 for fulfilling the God-given command in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. Right? Man and a woman are both necessary for procreation. 
Not only that, but as we've seen in previous episodes of this course, God has given fathers and mothers distinct roles to play in the nurture and care of the children. Of course, we must remember that because of the fall, not all couples will be able to conceive. Right? In Genesis chapter 3, the curse on the woman involves pain and childbearing. As the book of Genesis goes on, we see that barrenness is one of the effects of the curse, of the fall. And we should mourn with those who desire children and, and have not yet received this blessing. But still, the, the reality of infertility doesn't mean that procreation isn't part of sex in its original design. Sex and procreation may be broken, but openness to procreation is still an integral aspect of sex. Second, a marriage is only a marriage as such if it is between a man and a woman because marriage is a picture of two distinct parties in covenantal union. That, that is what we mean by our phrase, symbolic of the relationship between Christ and the church. Right? In Ephesians chapter 5, we see that marriage teaches us about the church's relationship to Christ because the wife and the husband are different and fulfill distinct roles. Right? Christ doesn't do the same role as the church. The church does not do the same role as, as Christ. They are different. They fulfill distinct roles. And so a so-called marriage of two people of the same sex would not have the same symbolic meaning. Now, with this definition in mind, what have we learned about sex? Well, the lesson we should draw is that marriage and sex are mutually interpreting realities. The marriage union is sealed and reaffirmed through sex. So sex is, in part, what ratifies a marriage. At the same time, though, sex receives its meaning and legitimacy from the marriage relationship. See, sex is not merely an act, but rather it's the union of a married man and woman. This means that, from the standpoint of the Bible, sex between a man and a woman in marriage is pure and simple, the definition of sex. Every other kind of sexual activity is, properly speaking, not true sex. It may involve sexual behaviors, but outside of the context of marriage, it's counterfeit. It doesn't bear the same meaning. It's lying. Right? You can set up basketball hoops on a golf course and bring two basketball teams onto the grass and play a game that kind of maybe resembles basketball a little bit. But if it's not on a real approved court, it won't count for the NBA standings. Right? The teams may be going through the same motions, but their activity is outside of the proper domain for a true basketball game, one that really counts. Basketball on grass isn't really basketball at all. And in the same way, we're seeing that sex outside of biblical marriage isn't really sex at all. And now, that can help us make sense of a chapter like Leviticus chapter 18. Now, when some people read a chapter like this, it seems like there are a lot of you shall not do X, Y, or Z. And this, this text uh, includes uh, laws against all sorts of illicit sexual activity, like incest and homosexuality and adultery and bestiality. Right? Or even a, a chapter like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says that those who commit sexual immorality, adultery, and homosexuality, among other sins like greed and reviling, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But really, these chapters are just putting in the negative what Genesis 2 has already said in the positive. These laws are gracious guardrails to help the people of God understand what true sex is. 
Sex is marital union. And everything short of marital union is a hollow counterfeit. A hollow counterfeit. It has none of the relationship, none of the symbolism, none of the meaning, none of the beauty, none of the glory of, of what sex is intended to be, true sex by God. See, God's design is not meant to hinder our joy. To the contrary, His purpose is to maximize our joy, for us to enjoy His good gifts free from distortions and perversions of sin. So, that brings us to our next point. Now, as we've seen so far, a biblical view of marriage should help us see what God has actually said about sex makes a great deal of sense after all. Sex is marital union, but still, this can be a really hard teaching. And one of the reasons the biblical view of sexuality seems difficult to many is because in the last couple of centuries, especially in our culture, maybe even in the last couple of decades, we've come to see sex as mainly involving personal fulfillment and pleasure. Right? In, in past eras, uh, authoritative instruction about life primarily came from some authority figure outside of yourself, like God or your nation or your family or your tribe. In this framework, sex is connected to a broader framework for morality outside of yourself. But beginning with the Enlightenment Romantic periods in the 18th and 19th century, our culture has moved to a place in which moral authority is increasingly self-determined. Rather than the righteous life consisting of being faithful to your God or your nation or your family, the moral life now simply means you are faithful first and foremost to yourself, including your desires. Now, that means that personal desires have become elevated to a level of moral authority. According to many people, the greatest sin is to refuse to fulfill your personal desires, especially your sexual desires, but that is at odds with Scripture. Scripture nowhere says that our own fallen desires are a faithful guide for what is good and right. Nor does it teach that sexual expression is essential to living a full and abundant life. To see this, I want us to spend some time considering what we call the sexuality of Jesus. What does the life of Jesus teach us about what it means to be a sexual being? Now, by sexuality of Jesus, I mean two things. First, the fact that Jesus has a sex. He is male, right? The, the eternal Son of God took on flesh and bone. He united a human nature to his divine nature. He died and rose again in a glorified body now, and he's seated as an embodied human man at the right hand of God the Father. And from all this, we see gender is good, right? Jesus didn't come as a genderless blob of a person. That's because there's no such thing. He came as a real person with a real body, and he was a man. Now, this doesn't mean that femininity is less important or valuable than masculinity, Right? The Son of God affirmed the good of womanhood by being born of a woman, literally conceived in, inhabited Mary's womb. Right? As 1 Corinthians 11 says, men and women are interdependent. We need each other. And Jesus' own time as a baby in the womb illustrated this perfectly. So firstly, we mean that Jesus was a man. Secondly, by the sexuality of Jesus, we mean that Jesus is himself a sexual being. 
as a real human person, he took on a body that was capable of sexual activity, and yet he refrained from sex. Now, this means that it is possible to be fully human, totally content, and abstain from sex for one's whole life. The term for that is chastity. And chastity is more than simply abstention from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. See, Jesus didn't avoid sex because sex is bad, or somehow he was too dignified for it. No, he taught that marriage as a one flesh union is good and part of God's design. You can look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 to 6. Rather, getting married simply was not part of his mission on earth. And, and praise God for that. His, his example shows you can live a life of service to God, fulfilled joy and contribution to the good of others without sex. Sexual activity isn't essential to being a human or essential for ultimate satisfaction in this life. Yet, it's important for us to see that Jesus, as a single man, wasn't just holed off in a monastery somewhere, living alone. No, he, he had committed close friendships. John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. In John eleven five, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus didn't express his sexuality within marriage, but, but he did have many meaningful, loving relationships. He was fulfilled relationally. In that, too, he should be a model for us. Now, many of us hear this teaching about Christ's life of chastity, and we say to ourselves, well, it must have been easy for him. I mean, he's God. <laughs> to which I would first say, well, of course, he is the God-man. Yet he did live fully as a man, dependent on the Spirit, following the plans and purposes of the Father. In this, his divinity didn't in any way take over or eliminate his humanity. Right? He knew struggle. He resisted Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 tells us that he suffered when tempted. And as one who identifies with us, Fully in our human weakness, we know that he delights to give grace to help us in time of need when we are tempted as well. Hebrews 4.16. So, should we expect that some of Jesus' followers might live lives of fruitful and fulfilled chastity as he did? Yeah. In fact, that's what Jesus himself said. Listen to Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. For there are eunuchs who've been, uh, who've been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, a eunuch refers to someone who is able to, uh, unable to have sex. As Jesus explains, some people are unable to have sex from birth. Maybe due to physical deformities that result from the fall, certain individuals may just not be able to engage in sex. Jesus also recognizes there are those who have been made eunuchs by men. Now, in the ancient world, some royal male servants were castrated so they could serve in the women's quarters and not pose any threat of sexual assault or infidelity. So how comforting that Jesus knows and sees those in these difficult conditions. Yet again, we can remember Jesus' own example that a life without sex is not a second-class life. It's not a second-class experience of life. And what he says next reinforces that. He says there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
And here Jesus turns and he uses the idea of a eunuch metaphorically. He's saying that some Christians will choose a state of ongoing singleness, perhaps for a season, maybe for a whole life, all for the purpose of serving the kingdom. And the Apostle Paul was one of those who did just that. He explained in 1 Corinthians 7 that those who are single are freed from the concerns to care for a spouse and can devote more of their energies to serve the broader kingdom. Now, of course, there are many single believers who have an unmet desire for marriage. Marriage, it can be a good desire. We must recognize that not all single believers experience and feel their singleness to be the gift that it is. We must empathize with those who are in a season of longing for marriage. But still, believers longing for marriage can take comfort that Jesus affirms the value of singleness and chastity, and he himself lived out the goodness of the single life. Not only that, but you have an opportunity right now in your life to live, if you are single, in a way that can serve other people in greater ways than you can when you are married or when you have kids, especially little kids at home. I remember very specifically striving as a 23-year-old to serve uh, a single mom and her three boys uh, that I that I met and I came across, uh, the Lord put in my path. And so for three years, I was able to come alongside of and be a support system for this family, to help with these boys, to help teach them what does it mean to be a godly man? What does it, what does it mean to live a life that honors the Lord? And, and God used my singleness in, in a time where, I, like right now, I would not have enough time to do that. And yet God gave me a lot of time to be able to do that. I even planted uh, the first church that I did when I was 24 and single and the the weight of that was nuts and crazy, and yet God used my life in that time to do that because of the amount of time that I had to pour into other people. Thus, it is a good thing to use and leverage your singleness for the glory of God. And there's a great call and, and impetus to live that way. And it is a beautiful thing. It is a life that is full. It is a life that is lived for the kingdom of God. It is, it is a beautiful thing, brother and sister. If you are single, leverage your life to do just that. It is a great thing to be single. It is a great thing to be chaste. It is a great thing to live out of the goodness of the single life and to leverage your singleness for the gospel. So what have we seen thus far? Well, we've seen that God's design for sexuality within marriage is good. We've seen that sex is covenantal union, so all forms of sexual sin fall short of God's design. We've seen that Jesus, an unmarried man, is our prime example for holy sexuality, though he never engaged in sex. Now, how do all these things play out on the ground, ground level, earthiness of our Christian lives? Well, let's turn briefly to one example. And it's the issue of same-sex attraction. How does the biblical vision that we've been exploring speak to the very real situation of a person who feels a deep and persistent predisposition towards attraction to, of people to of the same sex? Well, here are four things that we can say. First, we must recognize the reality that fallen people have fallen desires. All of us. This is all of us. So first, we all of us have fallen desires. 
there's a great book called Is God Anti-Gay? And one of the things uh, that is in that book that is just so helpful for all of us as Christians is to realize that we all have fallen sexual desires that we cannot live out because they, at their core, are rebellious against God's good design for sex and for marriage and for who we are to be as humans. Like we're all born into this world uh, and none of us are born into this world as straight. We are all born into this world as broken and bent in every possible way. And that includes our sexuality. So we must recognize the reality that all of us are born into this world as broken, bent people with as fallen people with fallen desires, the spirit at work in us of disobedience that leads us away from God's good design for our flourishing as humans and towards sinfulness. Now, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things. Do you ever think about that? People say, listen to your heart. It is calling for you. No, don't. don't. Do not listen to your heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? Meaning, meaning you, you cannot. You can't understand your own heart. Now, Paul is clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right? Desiring sin is natural for sinners, and that includes sexual desires heterosexual lust, homosexual lust alike. Right? In fact, Titus 3.3 says that in our sin, we are all slaves to various passions and pleasures. Right? Though creation is good and sex is good, our desires are distorted. And we must not and cannot redefine sex according to our desires. But instead, we must depend on God to transform our desires, Romans 12, 1, in accordance with his will. So we must clearly state that same-sex sexual desires are wrong. They're wrong. Second, Scripture equips us to offer an answer to the question. Well, what if someone is born that way? And that's a great question. If you're born that way. Well, being born with the desires that seem out of line with the biblical teaching on sexuality and marriage does not invalidate the Bible's teaching that homosexual desire is sinful. Let me say that again. Being born with desires that seem out of line with the Bible's clear teachings on sexuality and marriage does not invalidate the Bible's teaching that homosexual desire is sinful. David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So do same-sex desires come from nature or nurture, you might be wondering? Well, it could be both. I mean, the doctrine of original sin teaches us that none of us are exempt. We, we don't have to be taught to desire sin. Wicked longings are innate in our fallen condition. And at the same time, we are raised and nurtured in a sinful world that is opposed to God. I mean, just think about the world around us. Think about what is in the education system right now. 
the way that we are raised and nurtured in a sinful world to be opposed to God and to his standards and instead to find our own truth deep within us, to listen to our hearts, to listen to our minds, listen to what we might feel or think is true, as opposed to having any kind of standard of truth that we can test anything by. From this, we realize other people can mislead us. They may even sin against us in ways that make us confused about what is right and what is wrong. Third, we must, we must on one hand affirm that all sins make us deserving of condemnation. Right? Homosexuality is not the unforgivable sin. There are many believers who experience same-sex attraction and yet are actively seeking to live lives of holiness in submission to God's will. And such brothers and sisters are not in a different class of Christian. They're not dirtier than the rest of any of the Christians. All of us as Christians have perverted, wicked, and ungodly desires. At the same time, on the other hand, we shouldn't forget that homosexual activity is a particularly consequential denial of God's design for marriage and sex. Homosexual behavior takes the institution of marriage, which is intended to portray Christ and the church, and it distorts the picture. It distorts that picture of Christ and the church. Fourth, our posture towards believers who experience same-sex attraction must be one of compassion, kindness, gentleness, and speaking the truth in love. And let me say that again. Compassion, kindness, gentleness, and speaking the truth in love. And so the ultimate goal for anyone with same-sex desires isn't to develop heterosexual attractions and get married, though all things are possible with God. Remember, one could become attracted to people of the opposite sex and still sin by lusting after them. So the goal isn't necessarily heterosexual desires. That's not the goal. The goal is holiness, right? We talked about this on Sunday. The goal is holy holiness. We want to live in a way that's clean before the Lord. The goal is singleness to the glory of God, whether for a lifetime or for a season. If God brings a person of the opposite sex maybe into your life to whom you, you can commit and give yourself sexually in marriage, praise God. Praise God. And if not, if you live the rest of your life in holiness, in a chaste life, living for the glory of God and the good of others around you, praise God. Praise God. So, so, so here, here is the question that we want to, want to walk through uh, in this episode as well. If, if a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction is getting to know you, are, are you the kind of person that they will be able to trust? Are the kind of person they will be able to trust can they confide in you about this? Do they want to? I mean, I mean recognize that, that experiencing same-sex attraction can be very confusing and very challenging. So, so listen and show that you, you care about them as a brother and sister. Be, be aware that the world is sending very strong signals about homosexuality, especially this month. <laughs> very strong signals. Even our own government, very strong signals. And some of our brothers and sisters in their flesh, in their weakest moments, would love to believe these lies. Just like all of us live to, and we, we are prone to maybe believing lies that are out there. So, so we want to pray for them, to have courage 
and to stand strong. We want to ask how we can care for them. Perhaps, above all, don't define them in your mind by this one particular desire either. They're not defined by this one particular sin that they might have any more than than you're defined by one particular sin or desire that you might have. And again, Sam Albury in that very helpful book, Is God Anti-Gay? He shares his own experience of same-sex attraction. But he also says that by God's grace, this particular temptation doesn't define him. In fact, he finds that he is more tempted towards pride and greed than homosexual lust. And, And that's a good reminder that we must see each other as far more than any one particular sin struggle. Our identity is in Christ. And if you want to see a great uh, video series that Sam did, I'm going to link it in the show notes below. Sam came and spoke at uh, the church that Nino and I were sent out of a couple of years ago, uh, right before we got there. And he did a great job of explaining and and walking through what does it mean to have these same-sex attractions and yet to live for the glory of God. I would greatly commend listening. It is a wonderful, uh, wonderful video series. Uh, his book as well, Is God Anti-Gay, is very good. I'll have that in the show notes as well. But all this is a good reminder that we must see each other as far more than any one particular sin struggle. Our identity is in Christ. Now, with all that said, I'm going to close us with a few general points of application. So firstly, we should, as a church, be those who honor marriage. We should honor marriage. All Christians, this is our call, honor marriage. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among you all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So pray for those who are married, that God would bless them with faithfulness and purity. Pray that their marriages would be a witness to the world of Christ's love for the church. And if you're not married, consider how you can serve married couples help out weddings or help babysit their kids or various things like that. We, we need you as single people to be in small groups with married couples and help serve our kids, share your life in the gospel with them and with us. We need you as good uncles and aunties to help, help love our kids well and be people they want to model their lives after as well. So firstly, we honor marriage. Secondly, we as a church should honor singleness. We want to honor singleness. Paul does. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. See, marriage is a good thing to desire, but the end of the Christian life is not to become married, have 2.5 kids and a white picket fence. No, the end of the Christian life is to reach the new heavens and the new earth where human marriage will be no more. It will be no more. So we should never treat single Christians as Second-class Christians. In fact, single Christians are living, they're a living preview of what every Christian's condition will be on that final day. Not married to any human being, but part of the bride of Christ. And then lastly, we should cultivate strong friendships. Our culture has elevated romantic and sexual love to the exclusion of other forms of friendship and affection. But the church, our church, is a spiritual family that should be full of thick relationships where we, where we know one another, where we are known by one another, and where we remember that the blood of Christ that unites us is thicker than the waters that might unify us as earthly family members.
blood is thicker than water. The blood of Christ is thicker than our natural relationships. We are a spiritual family. And it's here, ultimately, in the church, in the local church, in our church, where we see this biblical vision for sexuality lived out as married and single believers alike walk in purity and faithfulness, seeking the world that is to come. And as we're wrapping up this last episode on biblical manhood and womanhood, I want to again thank the wonderful folks of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. This information, this series would not have been possible without them. We use many of the bones and structure that they gave us, many of their words, many of their resources and footnotes, many of their quotes. And we are so incredibly thankful for a church like theirs who would so generously give us material like this to be able to equip us as a very young church. Uh, as well, if you're interested in continuing to learn about biblical manhood and womanhood, there's a great book that Wayne Grudem and John Piper wrote together that I will also have in the show notes, uh, as well as a couple of other materials that might be helpful. Thanks again for tuning into this and, and for continuing to walk with us as a ministry as we are striving to be faithful to God's word in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation who would much rather us not stand on the truth of Christ and instead bend to whatever the cultural moment tells us to bend to. And so, as we continue to live our lives to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, it is a joy to do so with you, my brothers and sister, as men and women, celebrating these God-given genders that he has given to us, that we may steward them well for his glory as we seek to live lives of holiness. So thanks for tuning in to this episode series. Pray this has been beneficial and helpful to you.